Welcome to Andy Gamers Podcast number 61. I am your host, Evan Minto, also known as Vamptvo. And this episode is not a typical one for the Andy Gamers Podcast. Usually I'll be talking with my co-host David Estrella, but this time it's just a solo interview I did with Helen McCarthy. I introduce Helen in the interview proper, but just to give a quick summary, she is a longtime anime fan and anime writer who was very, very influential in early UK anime fandom and frankly early English language anime fandom in general. So I talked with her about what that was like being around at the, the birth of English language anime fandom, as well as her work on the anime encyclopedia and the challenges of preserving anime's history. Unfortunately, my portable recorder ran out of space right before this interview, so I had to make do with my laptop's internal microphone. So I did my best to clean it up, and hopefully it sounds all right. If you'd like to check out more from our podcast, please go to anygamers.com slash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, and please subscribe to us and leave us reviews there. And definitely send us feedback for this episode or any other at podcast at anygamers.com. We'll be back in a week or two with one of our regularly scheduled episodes with David. Enjoy. Uh, I'm sitting down here with Helen McCarthy here at Anime Next, uh, just after her panel. Uh, so you just did a panel called... The Last of the Giants, or as one young fan told me when I was drafting it, The Last of the Dinosaurs. The Last of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> I didn't catch that at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh... And so that's all about uh, the sort of early generations of anime and manga creators, right? Not really or, early because there'd been some true. before the war but the the first post-war of generation of anime and manga creators which is sort of the kind the type of anime that we're familiar with that's yeah. right everybody from tezuka going forward from that and their influence and how their influence is gradually fading because they're all dying you know this, right. this happens the survivors are in their 80s and 90s um the survivors of the next generation, people like Rintaro, for instance, mm-hmm. whom I didn't mention, he's in his 70s now. Yeah. Um, he's still very dynamic, very creative. But when he goes, uh, that's our last living link with Tezuka gone, who actually really? worked with him professionally. I didn't know that. Yeah. Apart from Tezuka's brother, Hiroshi, right. who's still, um, he's very elderly now, but he keeps his memory alive, and his children, it's none of whom... He's passed away. But... Oh, right. goodness. Yes, he did recently. You're right. Yeah, you're right. His children are still alive. Uh, Makoto never really. Mm. Well, he worked with his dad. He did Mm. student film with his dad. Um, But uh, there's a wonderful ghost story of Tezuka playing a Shinto priest shot by Makoto when he was about 15. (sighs) Um, But all that generation's dying. And what we need to do is think about how the shape of anime is being changed by the loss of that generation. Yeah, it was was super fascinating. Uh, You actually got into some political. Talk yes, a lot, a lot of a lot very radical, yeah. dangerous political talk, which we really shouldn't do about anime because, hey, it's just a cartoon, right? Uh, I think <laughs> we need a little more of that sometimes. Yeah. Like mentions, I, I must A little admit. less just treating it as silly cartoons yeah. and more treating it like serious art. Well, I think when you have elements that are really serious, it's important to recognize their seriousness. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with a completely silly cartoon about girls who flash their underwear every time they dance. That's, that's great. It's good that people want that. But... What we really need is to recognize the seriousness of the history mm-hmm. and why it was serious and just make sure that that's embedded in what we do. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't actually just like intro you. So for the potential release of this as a podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Helen, you are a sort of living anime legend in the English speaking world. I uh, believe, correct me if I have any of these facts wrong, you're the author of the first English language book about anime. Yes. Uh, 
I actually could not find exactly what that's, which one that is. It, it is, is Anime, A Beginner's Guide to Japanese okay. Animation. Yeah. That was the first. Well, actually, it's not the first book because it's not the first thing with an ISBN. Two years ago, there was, two years before, there was a pamphlet called Manga, Manga, that's Manga, yeah. Animation at the ICA. Okay. But that was literally a pamphlet, even though it has an ISBN. So wasn't I always like a count, real book. Wasn't, right. Well, I, I always count books. It's a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. Bibliophiles <laughs> argue over this. If it has an ISBN, it's a real book. It's in all, all data catalogs. But I always think that if it's just bound with staples, it's not a real book. I think it's really funny, though, that you're arguing here about which of the things that you wrote is the first book. English language true. book about anime. Yeah, that's, you that, win that's, either way. that's true. Yes. <laughs> it's the kind of argument I love to have. Um, and yeah, I guess you also uh, were super influential in UK anime fandom, right? I, uh, according to the con guide, again, correct me if I have any of these details wrong. Uh, you would, or this might be from Wikipedia, so correct me if I'm wrong here. First person in the UK to run an anime program at a convention, start a dedicated anime newsletter, and edit a dedicated anime magazine. Those are all right. I also founded the dedicated anime right. magazine anime with three UK. other people, yeah, yeah, Anime UK, and we, we ran it for five years and we sold it in Japan, which we were enormously proud of. Kinokuniya took regular supplies from us, um, and I miss that magazine to this day. And, and you did a panel about it at this convention. I yeah. did indeed, and it's kind of bittersweet that a lot of other people miss that magazine to this day as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I write for Otaku USA, and, and some of the stuff you talked about in terms of like the conventions established by the, the mm. magazine, in terms of like just cover design even, oh, are like yeah. already... They're like yeah. still there. I think just, we just, used the Japanese in the cover for Otaku USA, I think. Like, oh, yeah. I think we still use that, yeah. But just the playfulness, the mm -hmm. fact that we, we took from the Japanese anime magazines yeah. all their visual playfulness, and that's passed on everywhere else, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was just going to start the, the basic interview here with, like, how did you first find anime and manga? How did you first get interested in it? Um... I was interested in Japan, but only as a historical artifact, you know, tea mm. ceremony, Bushido, that okay. kind of stuff. Oh, that's like the reverse of a lot of like weeaboos oh, yeah. nowadays. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I went to a very academic school and I was asked to do a project comparing Bushido with Courtney Love in the French court in the 12th century. Is this uh, college? No, it's, it's a, a, a private girls' grammar school. Grammar school. Religious okay, school. Okay, okay. So yeah. young. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was 12. Right. And my father absolutely refused to let me do it. Because, like many of his generation, he um, didn't know anything about Japan except that these were the people who killed so many of our guys during the war. Mm. He had friends on the Burma Railroad, some of whom didn't come back. Mm. So my, my headmistress, who was a very stern nun who wasn't used to being argued with, had to actually write to him and invite him to come and see her so she could explain why this was so important. And he grudgingly gave his consent. But until my father died, he could never forgive the Japanese people. He said individuals, that was fine. He understood that like, right. like him and his friends, individual soldiers had no choice. But he said he could not forgive the culture that had created that level of cruelty. And I can understand that. You know, wow. I perceive it in a different way because I had different experience. But I did this project and it was fascinating and I learned a great deal from it. And I didn't think about Japan again, even though I was merrily watching Marine Boy on BBC TV, like <laughs> every other animation fan and science fiction fan in Britain, without so, realizing it was Japanese. So is Marine Boy, for, for American fans, the equivalent uh, in terms of anime fan history of like Astro Boy? In terms of being... Not quite. Okay. Uh, Marine yeah. Boy is a, a mix of two right. Japanese series, Kaite Shonen Married mm -hmm. and Prince Pappy. And the, the two of them are kind of, no, it's not Prince Pappy, it's Prince Neptune, I think. But okay. the two of them are merged together 
in one series to give run time and to allow them to cut things out. And mm. it features the adventure of adventures of a, a boy who can breathe under sea with the help of oxy gum, chewing gum that gives you oxygen. Can't wait till we invent that. It'll be so cool. That no, sounds good. Batman could really use that. Yeah, absolutely. And he had a, a great friend called Neptina, a mm. mermaid whose voluminous hair flowed freely in the sea, except for the two bits that were pasted in place across her nipples. <laughs> And her sea, her sea, sea lion chum mm -hmm. would go on adventures with them and they would, you know, defeat various bad guys. It was a very standard cartoon, but it was quite a bit later than Astro Boy. It was about, I think, three or four years later than Astro Boy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I didn't know it was Japanese. Most of us didn't know it was Japanese. Right, right. And then I met the guy who is still my partner, Steve Kite, and he'd just come back from Spain, where in Europe they'd had anime and manga from the mid-1970s in local languages. Mm -hmm. um, no attempt about that a little bit. Oh yeah, no attempt palette, to yeah. disguise the Japanese-ness, but in local languages. And they were very popular because the anime went out on TV. Back then, most people didn't have VCRs anyway, but you mm -hmm. didn't have to buy anything. You just turned on the TV and watched it. And the comics were sold in cheap little you know, ironmonger stores and convenience stores mm -hmm. and so on. So you could pick them up easily, and they were at the price that a school kid could afford or a teenager could afford. So naturally... Europe, Southern Europe anyway, from France all the way down through Italy, Spain, became a hotbed of anime and manga. The choice of titles wasn't huge, but there yeah. were girls' titles like Candy Candy and Flower Angel Lunlun alongside uh, boys' titles. And it was just a really cool place. And once I realized that this stuff actually had a unique cultural origin mm -hmm. and that nobody knew anything about it in Britain, I decided I had to write a book about it. And this was 1981. And I decided then that I was going to write the anime encyclopedia and what the anime encyclopedia was going to be. And it only took me till 2001 to get it published. <laughs> so I was interested in something you said there about, uh, about your, your father having like, the prejudice against, mm. uh, against Japanese people. Because actually, I'm, my, my grandpa fought in World War II yeah. and was similarly like, prejudiced. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's much less of an issue basically a non-issue nowadays for like kids getting into anime but, of course like, it is the japanese right. didn't torture their dads and kill their friends <laughs> right but like i mean so in previous generations like was it much a much bigger conversation about that about, there was like, a huge conversation yeah. it was a conversation that went on in popular culture mm -hmm. my dad wasn't a huge reader but he used to buy series of war comics and commando comics which were little like six by four sized cheaply printed comic book series that you could buy for, I don't know, the equivalent of maybe 10 or 15 cents at the mm. time. And they all had stories of our heroic Tommies, sometimes with heroic GIs, but they were written for the British market, so you always played a side We're the side characters, yeah. Yeah, or, or US Marines or something uh -huh. like that. But you, you, yeah, you were, you were always the sideshow. Um, our heroic Tommies fighting on various fronts. And in these, the Nazis were incredibly evil, mm -hmm. and the Japanese were only slightly less evil than the Nazis. And duped by yeah, them. It's not a good place to be. It really isn't a good place to be. And and Dad, you know, read these, and he and all his friends who'd been in the trenches yeah. um, got most of their information about how the Japanese and the Germans behaved from military propaganda. Now, obviously, nobody's going to say the enemy are really nice guys, and when this is all over, we'll just forget about it and get on together. Yeah. Um, every every single person on the war front was an ordinary guy. And most old soldiers that you talk to now, and, and my dad, would say, you know, the, the ordinary German, the ordinary Japanese, I haven't got an issue with, because he's right. been told he's got to get his boots on and go out there or he'll be shot, just like we were. And so that's fine. But what I can't stand is the command structure and the culture. Yeah. 
Um, my dad never had an issue with Germans, um, mm -hmm. but he had a huge issue with German culture. Yeah. He never had an issue with, he never met an individual Japanese, but he always said he wouldn't have an issue with individual Japanese, but he had a massive issue with Japanese culture. Yeah, so also following up on, you know, when you decided to write the, the book, um, sort of like what was the level of knowledge and the, like the level of discourse in fandom like at the time? Because I can imagine it was completely different from when, right when now. I started when I decided to write the book there was no level of discourse because there was no fandom we hadn't made it yet really? um, Steve and I had just seen this stuff and thought we have to find out about it and then thought we can't find out about it and the one thing I don't do well is I don't step back well when somebody says to me you cannot do that I always look for the loophole it's one of those good weaknesses to have it depends. Sometimes it leads you to a lot of trouble and mm -hmm. projects that sit there for mm. 20 years without doing anything and then suddenly they explode right, on right. you. But, you know, yeah, when somebody says to me, this cannot be done, I also always say, really? Um, <laughs> and make no other comment and go away and do it. Uh, because literally, I don't care. I have the time I have now, which is the second I'm talking to you. I will still have the same time I have now when I go into the next second. That's all the time I've got. So I might as well say I'm going to do this because there's nothing stopping me. Only time. <laughs> so basically, there were there were there weren't fan communities. There were people watching things on TV. There were fan communities, okay. but they were for different things. And Star Trek fandom right. was my oh, salvation. Yeah. Right, right, right. I was a Trekkie. I still am a Trekkie. I'm proud of being a Trekkie. I've never wanted to be a Trekker. I don't mind being belittled by the name Trekkie because I've never felt it to be a badge of dishonor. But uh, my Trek fan friends, many of them were in the US military mm -hmm. um, or in European militaries. And I was finding out that every other there was a US base from about the early 80s on, there was this thing called the Cartoon Fantasy Organization. Um, and that meant that we could start to get anime. And gradually we met other people who were in the same position with connections on bases who could start to get anime. So people, the CFO was kind of there first? I, I think the CFO you... was probably the first organization, right. but there were French organizations as well, right, which right. we had good contacts with. Um, and really, it was moot as to who gave who what first. It was more a case mm. of who had the equipment, yeah, yeah. Um, which in those days was much scarcer than it is now, because whereas now you can go out and buy a Blu-ray player for $29. Back then, you used to pay $350 for a VCR recorder, and you would save for, <laughs> we saved for our first VCR recorder for two years. <laughs> yeah. Um, we rented one in the end to keep us going while we saved to get our own. But it, it was a wholly different universe and it's impossible to get anyone in fandom today to go back there. We should maybe make a movie because then they'd see what it was like. But we, we did start to get connections with other fans. I met a kid called Tony Luke who was about 14 mm -hmm. on RF Lakenheath where his dad was a civilian British contractor. And he moved around all over the world and he was potty about Japan. He was crazy about Godzilla. He had a little camera and he was making these movies in which Godzilla was attacked by aliens who looked just like sugar lumps on pieces of string. You know, no resources, but endless ambition. Uh, sadly, Tony passed at the beginning of this year, a oh. uh, victim of cancer, but he never gave up pitching, which I suppose is what endeared him to me from the word go. And uh, we, we gradually got a few people together and I began to realize that it wasn't just me, there were legs in this thing. And then I got the opportunity. We, we gathered a community of, of maybe 150, 200 people spread all over the UK. In the UK That we corresponded yeah. with because you wrote letters back yep. then. Yep. And that we uh, telephoned mm -hmm. um, because we didn't have email. You know, I believe email was around in the early 80s, but certainly nobody, yeah. nobody outside a university or a military establishment had it. 
So we would do the old-fashioned thing. We would write to somebody and say, got this really, really great thing that you must see. Let me know if you want it. Mm -hmm. And then we'd put them in a padded, put the tapes in a padded bag and send them off through the post. And the other person would write to us when they had them and it would be tedious and slow and thrilling. The thrill you got when something came through the post that you've been waiting for was right. much better than you get from Amazon today. Um, <laughs> because you literally had no idea what it would be like. You knew that somebody else had said it was an acceptable standard, but would you find it an acceptable standard? You knew that somebody mm -hmm. else had said it doesn't judder in my machine, but would it judder in your machine? You know, there, was, there was that knife edge the whole time. You were dancing with destiny. And uh, then in 19... How was it? 1988, I got the opportunity to do a favor to science fiction fandom. Um, I was a science fiction fan. I'd been going to a lot of cons, but I'd started going with my Trek fan friends. And British cons then were quite tweedy and quite conservative and women knew their place. And none of us Trek girls did. You know? <laughs> well, we knew our place and we believed it was running uh. the universe. Um, <laughs> so I can see that we probably didn't handle traditional science fiction fandom very well. But they did appreciate that it was a really good idea to have scantily clad women drifting around the conventions as long as they didn't try and express their opinions on real stuff too freely. Um, so we had an in and it had become noticed in fandom how, I have no idea, that I can pitch. Mm -hmm. um, possibly because I never shut my mouth for more than 30 seconds. And you say uh, that you can pitch it. Is that a UK slang? Or uh, UK, like, turn I can make a pitch for any or just, you sale. You pitching, you're I can, pitching I, I, something. I can pitch something. Yeah. I can pitch an idea. Um, and the, uh, the National Science Fiction Convention is pitched for every two years by competing groups who okay. bring it to a particular city. Got it. And the convention wanted in 1990 um, to come to a specific location. And the group didn't think that they had anyone who would sustain the pitch on their own. So they asked me, would you help us with the pitch? And I said, yep, I certainly will. But my price is, I want 36 hours of streaming time, decent time, not all midnight, in reasonable rooms for an anime stream. So you were acting as a Star Trek fan, pitching for the Within science, science fiction, fiction convention. Yeah. But that was your in for Anime. Getting yeah. anime yeah. in there. But I was yeah. also a science fiction fan. Right. And I've been, been a Doctor Who fan forever. But at that stage, even in the late 80s, there were still people who argued that Doctor Who wasn't proper science fiction. Um, <laughs> yeah, proper science fiction fans get quite defensive. <laughs> so you wouldn't believe some of the fanzines from that era. They are bitchy. I mean, mm -hmm. they make 4chan look like a Sunday school picnic. <laughs> 4chan has no idea how to insult people. It should go back and read the fanzines of Greg Pickersgill. It's just much more effective. I don't effective. want 4chan to learn how to get more effective at insulting people. Well, I don't know. At least if you insult people with intelligence and style, it's a bit more entertaining <laughs> than insulting people without it. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, and that was probably really the sort of thing that will get me banned from the USA, but never mind. I did the pitch with the support of two other people on the team who were essentially there to rein me in from promising too much, which mm. is always easy when you're doing a pitch. And we won. We won the convention. So then, very honorably, the convention committee delivered for me, and I had 36 hours of programming to fill. So I contacted all my friends in France and in the States and across the UK and said, right, send me every bit of anime you can, and Steve and I will watch it and we'll put the program together got any strong recommendations, tell me, but remember you don't know local taste and we do, so we may not take them, don't be offended. And I got the most magnificent response. We had about 350 hours of anime sent to us on videotape, and we watched every bit of it. 
Um, fortunately, no hentai per se, apart from Murutsuki Doji. Um, cream lemon, but that doesn't really count as hentai. That's a bit soft. Oh. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the Amy trilogy, fair enough. But, uh, <laughs> but, but we thought we can do Pop Chaser. Yeah, Pop Chaser. Is. And we could probably get away with that, providing we 18 the room. Yeah. So we had this program and we set this program up, and it was an epic success. And at the end of the program, a lot, I met for the first time a lot of the people I've been corresponding with. And about 200 people gathered in the bar and said, we really want this to carry on. What shall we do? So I said, well, okay, if everybody doesn't mind sending me six stamped self-addressed envelopes, um, I could copy stuff at work then. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll put a newsletter together and we'll keep everybody in touch and we can talk about places that we find that sell Japanese stuff and places that we hear of where you can you can get tapes and we can you know we can at least if we pool our information we'll do a bit better so it was I mean to sort of sum that idea up there right and it's I think something that's not really that modern fans don't approach it this way but it, it was about like a, a lack of information and getting information yeah. from and people. sharing all the information right. that we had because we'd seen from CFO and and various other ARPAs in other fandoms that what happened when some people had all the tapes is that they had all the power and they could be mm -hmm. ridiculously mean to people and you know we're yep. British we don't do that so our theory from the word go was we will share every bit of information that people give to us and we said to everybody if you don't want this information shared don't give it to us because yeah. we will share it and that was fair so, for example, there was a shop in London at the time called Books Nippon near St. Paul's Cathedral. And once they got to know you and they knew you were okay, and if you built a relationship with one of the two English-speaking sales assistants, because most of you were the only non-Japanese person in there, they would let you go through to the little curtained-off cubicle at the back oh. where they kept all their Japanese rental tapes. Yeah. And we looked at Which it and we thought... They couldn't sell because they were... No, they were, they were just rental as a service for the Japanese community because right. then okay, there was yeah. no downloading. Mm. So people would come in and they, they'd have the tapes flown in from Japan once a week. And people would come in and pay a rental fee and see the latest episode of their, their favorite thing. So we just started uh, renting these things. It's an amazing resource for like that is, time yeah. period. Oh, it is. To have direct from Japan rental yeah. tapes. Well, of course, there was no subtitling on them. Sure, and they were sure. all NTSC, so they wouldn't run on a British system. <laughs> so we rented some tapes, took them home, found they wouldn't run on our system, did a bit of research in the local library and at the local electronics shop, and traded in our VCR for a very expensive £350 multi-region VCR. Mm -hmm. we, we, we decided it had been a good move to be renting, but we'd had the savings, and luckily we hadn't yet spent the savings on a mono-standard VCR. Mm. So we were able to just put a bit more in and get that. And from there, obviously, we could start saying to people, of course, we did not rip off any of those Japanese tapes. We didn't. We didn't have the technical know-how. Wow. But, uh, but we started saying to people, come round to ours on Sunday afternoon, and we'll show it. you what we've got. And huh. people started putting money in the pot and saying, get some more stuff out next week. And I'd say, no, not next week. I want one quiet Sunday. But we did monthly or fortnightly showings. Yeah. Gradually, people in the CFO sent us stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we, we were able to build up quite a, a good level of knowledge. What and, year is this? Um, we, would, we would be talking here about just before we actually went into EastCon 90, just after we went into EastCon 90, so 81. 1981. Yeah. No, sorry, 91. Yeah, anyone. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So 91. And we, I mean, Steve and I have been customers at this shop for ages because it did vastly overpriced Japanese anime magazines mm -hmm. 
and uh, Tokusatsu magazines. And Steve went there and paid stupid amounts of money for Godzilla stuff. Mm -hmm. And I paid stupid amounts of money for anything with Gundam on the cover. So, you know, we, they liked us there. We, we, yeah. we, were, we were foreign, but they liked us. <laughs> and eventually, what, one of the assistants, who was very sweet, started very kindly pointing out to us, look, this is a robot anime. Look, this is Gundam. Mm -hmm. And Steve learned to recognize all the typography. He's an artist, so to him, form matters more than right. meaning. But once he learned what Gundam looked like, yeah, then he could find it. any Gundam tape. Once he learned what Aura Battle of Dunbine looked yeah, like, yeah. he could recognize any tape. Especially with Kazakana. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, no, they, they were mostly, they had pasted on labels yeah. from the, the Japanese magazines. So you'd see the, the, the actual logo. You'd say, right. right, I've seen that logo on a Gundam yeah, cover. Yeah. This is Gundam. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, we got on pretty well. And then we, got the, we, we, we had this huge injection of tapes from all over. We only managed to show 36 hours of them, obviously, at the convention. Yeah. So we had a lot of tapes to go at. So we could give people a mix of subtitled tapes, fan subtapes, um, a few weird dubs in French and German, mm -hmm. um, and the undubbed tapes that came from Japan. Yeah. And the quality was uneven. But, you know, we had stuff. We were seeing things. We had friends. We were happy. And then one of our newsletter subscribers, Will Overton, who had met us at the con and been a passionate supporter ever since, came in and said, I've shown my boss the newsletter, and he says he thinks you're absolutely bonkers, but he thinks this thing will fly, and he wants to know if you'd like to talk about doing a magazine. Easy question. So that was where we started discussing Anime UK, and in the autumn of 1991, we put our first issue on the street. That was, that was a big achievement for us. That was major. Yeah. It was also stupid because none of us had done any publishing before. <laughs> Peter, um, Peter Gull, Will's boss, who is an unsung saint of British anime and is largely forgotten by people except me and Steve and Jonathan Clark. not an anime Will. fan? Uh, he's never been an Just anime a, fan. Just a publisher who saw he, promise in it. He's a designer, a designer who was taught in the old hot metal tradition. Peter oh, could God, lay right. forms he's by eye to within half a millimeter. Just amazing skills. But his firm did forms and letterheads and brochures and so on for general business. Okay. But he loved design. And what he saw in anime was an opportunity to be playful, to actually play with design. Mm -hmm. So um, Peter, the last I heard from him, was flying an old plane around Hawaii as a bus service. And that was his, his true love, you know, mm -hmm. to go with his wife to this beautiful place and uh, spend his retirement just flying old planes. But Peter then was full of passion for making a really great product and yeah. we owe him so much because without his willingness to put the money up and he said i can't pay you any money but i'll give you your expenses so you're not out of pocket for traveling to the office and you're not out of pocket for your dinners um and obviously when we start making some money there's going to be a profit split so we were happy with that we didn't sign papers we just shook hands on it that's super fascinating to me it just gives me thinking about how many people have had a big influence on the anime community who are not fans who like never even became fans but were just Huge involved in it number. on some other level yeah. yeah if steve jobs dad hadn't let him fool around in the garage right. would you be working on that computer <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, that's it. if he'd said steve go get your own workshop somewhere or get in here and do your homework you know right the whole future would have been different yeah it's 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 so easy to miss and overlook the people who have real influence at an early stage of, of something beginning to unfold. Even if they don't actually have like direct passion for the material, mm. but are just interested in like the yeah. work or something. What, what yeah. Peter cared about was making things look as good as they exactly. could. And he gave us a totally free reign with everything. And we took it. And yeah. we were a, a really tight foursome for the first few years. We were, um, I did all the editorial. I solicited 
contributions from outside saying we cannot pay you in fact we weren't able to pay people until our third year and in our final year the publisher ripped off a lot of people and they didn't get mm. paid but um saying we can't pay you but we'll give you some exposure we'll give you column inches obviously you get credited for everything you do um you get a free copy you know we can do yeah, that yeah. <laughs> yeah and we got some really amazing reviewers some very very talented very gifted writers we got a translator who dropped on us from heaven having picked up a copy on heathrow Nets. at the airport coming Jonathan back Clements. that's Jonathan Clements yeah. we got uh, people who were very raw as writers but who obviously had enormous gifts a guy called Peter J Evans who wrote a science fiction novel called Minosmi's Kiss did a wonderful analysis of why teenage girls are better in hard suits than guys and it was <laughs> it was very scientific it was all about neural response times and length of neural linkups <laughs> and the fact that women's reaction times especially young women's are basically infinitely faster than men's um, even of the same height and weight because they have much, much shorter neurons and they react faster. And it was it was great, it was really convincing. Wow. Um, guy called, who then called himself Jim Swallow, but is now James Swallow, an author of a number of very well-respected um, gaming magazines, mm. uh, gaming novels. He was one of our early writers. Um, we had, we just had some great people. Yeah. We had a lot of people who sent us their fanzines for review because of course once there was an anime market, people began to do fanzines and think, Anime UK, that's got to sell to at least, oh, I don't know, 2,000 people. If 1% of them buy my fanzine, that will be so cool. Yeah. And they'd send us their fanzines and say, can you review it? And of course we could review it because it was free material. And yeah. a lot of it was bloody good given the, the, the age yeah. of the people involved and, and the lack of experience. And some of those people I worked with last year on a book on how to draw. Mm -hmm. um, and they are astonishing artists, and I'm so proud to have had a hand in, in yeah. their start. Um, in fact, one of them, Laura Watton, is still doing Biomecha, the comic that she started out with when she was about 14. Wow. And every year that she works on it, she polishes it a bit more, she tightens it a bit more. She's she just become the most astonishing artist. So that was, that was probably the best bit of the journey. Yeah, I was going to ask about... Uh... When this stuff was starting out, like I know in the U.S., uh, a lot of like computer science departments at universities had had lots of anime fans in them, and they were kind of like these hotspots. Like, what were the hotspots in the U.K.? Where where was it starting to emerge from? Us in London, mm -hmm. and a shop called the Sheffield Space Centre at Sheffield. Hmm. The Sheffield Space Centre held Britain's first dedicated anime con in 1991, less than a year after the Easter con in 1990. And they went on to have three more anime days, four more anime days, I think, because they did have number five. Um, and again, out of there came a huge network of creativity. Sheffield Space Center was a conventional toy and bookstore. Okay. But a lot of their readers and purchasers began to ask them about anime stuff. Yeah. And so they started importing stuff. Dark Horse began to do comics, and they looked around America and saw what we can get. Mm -hmm. They got that, and it was it was just quite synergistic and quite straightforward. Uh, one of the guys who is one of my closest academic collaborators was 16 then and worked Saturdays in the store away from his day job. Now he is a professor of anthropology teaching at a major university in Japan and leading a department. This uh, yeah, life-changing stuff. Yeah. I mean, we thought it was life-changing to get on a coach at four o'clock in the morning to go up to Sheffield in the freezing cold for an anime con. We had no idea that someone would go off to Akita in the freezing cold to become a Japanese professor mm -hmm. as a result. <laughs> so, I mean, you've been to 
you've been to quite a few American and Japanese like anime conventions mm-hmm. and events and things, right? So yeah. how would you compare the the fandom between the three countries, between the UK, America, and Japan? I would not. Really? I would not because they are very different. And okay. I like that. And I do not wish to see that difference eroded. Sadly, I don't have the choice. But uh, right. I wouldn't make comparisons because it wouldn't be fair. Because each fandom is the way it is because of its culture, mm-hmm. because of its background. because of... If you tried to compare a convention in small upstate New York with a convention on the West Coast, yeah. you'd be struggling. Um, and yeah, even that's, that's yeah. my experience because yeah. I go to conventions in upstate New York yeah. and California. Yeah. So yeah. And if you tried to compare a convention in France, mm-hmm. even a big one like um, Anime Expo, they have their own Japan, Japanese anime expo, uh, with a convention in rural Germany, which might have 350 people in a church hall, mm-hmm. or a convention like AnimeCon in Holland, which is one of the major nexuses of world cosplay focus. They often host the European huh. cosplay finals. Um, and it's also the only convention, as far as I know, that holds for fans over the age of 20, which is legal drinking in Holland, yeah. regular Japanese whiskey tasting and education <sighs> sessions. How can you compare those cons? Right. It, it's just not possible. You can't compare those fans either. Fans in my age group are thankfully more plentiful than I knew they would be at the beginning because more of them have joined up. But you can't compare fans in my age group with fans who are at their first con today, except that we love anime because we love anime that are different and we probably love anime in a different way. Yeah. So I'm also I'm interested, uh, are there any kind of like... I think you probably would have come across this in writing the encyclopedia. Any kind of like big areas of knowledge where you think there's still a lot of gaps in the English-speaking world that need to be filled so, in, in anime fandom? So, so, so many. Yeah. From the word go, Jonathan and I and Ben over at Peleus.net uh, have yeah. been virtually the only people really interested in the careers of unfashionable animators and mangaka. Mm-hmm. Wanting, I, I ran a bit of stuff on my blog for a while called Unknown in English. Mm-hmm. about, And the criterion I had for selecting names for that was I had done a global search in English, French, and Italian, and I could not find the name. Yeah. Um, so I was digging about to find what I could there, but, but obviously Pelias.net has done far more yeah. than, the, than I have. So that's a big area. Let's do some re- research into the less fashionable, less popular, Yep, less yep. hot people. I can get Kiyoane coming out my coming out my ears yep. when I go online. I'd be much more interested in some of the early studios and some of the stuff. But even even things like Kyoto Animation, I did I did an animation panel today, and I tried to find a like video of the animation work of Yukiko Horiguchi, mm-hmm. who did character designs for Kion and is yep. like a super accomplished animator. There's like five clips that anybody has tracked down yeah. that they can confirm are animated by her. Yeah, of course, <laughs> like, some what? of it may be protecting her rights and her work and her privacy. Mm-hmm. The studio may have taken a decision, or she may have taken a decision, to release as little as possible mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to feed the fan feeding frenzy. Maybe, um, yeah. That would be reasonable. But, I mean, there are the, the, one of the big areas that has been desperately neglected, and Peter Gall actually picked this up when we were running Anime UK, mm-hmm. is children's anime. Yes. Anime for preschoolers. There's a lot of it about. Very little is known about our song, the great five-minute song clip thing that has run on Japanese TV for about 35 years and has featured some of the biggest names in Japanese pop. Plus, 
most of the time, amazing animation to accompany it because obviously rather than get this big star onto your channel to sing their hit, mm -hmm. it's a lot cheaper to get someone to knock off an animation for their right. hit. And there have been some astonishing things there, but we, uh, Jonathan and I researched thoroughly. Yeah. I am not fluent but patient mm -hmm. and quite competent. He is very fluent. Neither of us could find a complete list of Hinota, our song, anywhere. Um, wow. That needs a lot more research. Yeah. Of course, anything that came in pre-digital is quite likely still to exist in analog sources. But you know what it's like. Studios and companies clear out their, their stock rooms all the time. They say, that box of old junk, now Takata Sensei's retired. We don't need that. Ring her in if she doesn't want it, bin it. Yeah. You know, it, we're losing that, that whole heritage. What we actually need is people going around checking studio dumpsters, not for cells yep. or sketches, but for tedious old bits of scribbled information that we can then get transcribed. Even just text, right? That, yeah, like, that's what yeah. we need. That's text what we need. sheets and things. Yeah. Yeah. Because there, there, are, there are huge areas there. There are some areas that without that we will never know. Because studios write their preferred version of history like anybody else. They're, they're corporations, they have interests to protect that don't occur to us as fans and shouldn't occur to us as fans. Or even mistakes, right? I think uh, in, Absolutely. in Jonathan's uh, history book, he talks about anyway, how yeah. uh, how Tezuka claims that he watched uh, the Momotaro feature film mm. and it inspired him. Yeah. But like everyone had evacuated by the time that film came out. And yeah. so he probably watched the short film version. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. like Tezuka got it wrong. <laughs> well, he didn't necessarily got it wrong, get it wrong. He just might have been embroidering because Tezuka was, was mm. known occasionally to you know, embroider a little. And of course, as a kid, he probably thought it was the feature film version. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and would have watched it, would have been transformed by it. So the fact that he never saw the whole film, in my view, is not relevant. Mm -hmm. um, it's the kind of thing that John loves to pick up. He um, definitely likes to do that in he, anime he, history, He's a born yeah. nitpicker. Nip <laughs> uh, and it's great to have that knowledge. Right. It's great to have somebody saying, in my opinion, and in my informed opinion, this is what actually happened. Yeah. But we're never going to know. Yeah. We're never going to really Tesco's know. Tesco's gone. Yeah. Anybody who would have known that is gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we need as much documentary history as we can unearth. And that's why I always say to people, and anybody listening to this podcast, please... If a member of your family has been an anime fan, or if there are mm. old people in the area that you think are anime fans, and their stuff is being cleared out, or you know they pass and the family want to get rid of their stuff, please see if they've got a box of fanzines or old com materials, yeah. digitize them, put them online, anything, because we need that history. We're losing that history. Yeah. Actually, sounds like a pretty good place to stop. I think I got to go. So... Um... Where can people find you just for the podcast? What do you? What stuff are you up to? Well, yeah. at the moment, I am pinging out my first novel, which pings back with boring regularity, um, and I keep polishing it and hope it gets better. Working on the second draft of my second novel, and working on two anime book projects, which I can't discuss yet. But if they come off, they will be ridiculously exciting. And I've also just been invited to contribute a chapter to the British academic Raina Denison's book on Princess Mononoke. Oh. And I'm going to do a chapter called Teenage Wildlife, Mononoke and the Treatment of Women in Miyazaki's Other Movies. Because <laughs> I think that Princess Mononoke is the only Miyazaki movie that takes, um, as Charles Jumbo will put it, the maiden, the mother, and the crone, and doesn't insist on putting them in cages. Mm. In Mononoke, the major female characters all end up free with choice, with agency. They're not shackled by domesticity. And it's the only Miyazaki movie where he doesn't put his mermaids in cages. 
And that, I think, is, is going to be really fun to do. I'm looking forward to that massively. That sounds great. So there's, there's plenty on the horizon, but I'm always happy to hear from people. They can follow me on Twitter, where I am, at TweetHeart4711. Um, they can check out my blog on WordPress if they do, uh, I think it's wordpress.com slash Helen McCarthy or wordpress.com dot Helen McCarthy. I should look at my card, shouldn't I? I can never remember. Um, probably helenmccarthy.wordpress.com. Yes, helenmccarthy.wordpress.com. <laughs> and uh, I have an email address there where I'm always happy to answer questions. Um, I may not answer them in the level of detail you want. I expect you, if you ask me a question, to have read my books first and have come up with something I haven't already written about, because I write them to make money. So, you know, that's what you should do. You should go out and read them first, and then if you find something that I haven't answered in the books, I'm happy to help you if I can, especially if you're a student or a high school student. I also offer editing and research services, um, which are professionally priced, yeah. so a lot of people get phased by that. But uh, <laughs> if my prices are not right for you, I can probably recommend a couple of other good people who may be more right. And I just love working with fans. So I'm thinking of starting a sideline after the success of my business panels at Acon and here yeah. in doing business consultancy for fan businesses. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, that's something that I've been through and had the scars. And I think that's something a lot of fans want to do but feel nervous about. So perhaps I can give people a little bit of advice to steer them in the right general direction. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for sitting down with Thank me. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Yeah.